Hi, and welcome to another episode of Eyes for Ears, your OCAP and ophthalmology board review podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts this week, Amanda Redfern. And I'm Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these episodes are meant for medical education only, not for diagnosing anything on anyone's eyes. But speaking of diagnosing things on people's eyes, what are we going to be diagnosing today? Uh, today we've cooked up a script for iris tumors. Ooh. And this is one of those things that is spread all throughout multiple BCSE volumes. But if you're staring at an iris nevus, really hoping it hasn't become or is becoming an iris melanoma, and you're trying to remember everything else you should remember about the differential of these things, because it's not just those two entities that could be what you're looking at, I wished I'd always had something that compiled everything together. So this is our attempt. Thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate it because I likewise just look at an iris mass and go, hmm, Wonder what that where do be. I look this up? <laughs> what is it? Yeah, I figured we'd open with some general points and then uh, talking about things to look for specifically on clinical exam and some management tips before we went into the differential, because a lot of these sort of conceptual, how do you deal with this, this stuff? is fairly similar across all of them, because most of the time, the management dilemma is, how do you tell them apart? And the answer is, it's really, really, really hard. Mm, that is part of the clinical challenge when managing them. Uh, you just don't really know what it is you're dealing with in real life all the time. And biopsy would help for sure, but biopsy may also be not worth doing. Yes, the classic question, to biopsy or not to biopsy? A lot of these can cause glaucomas, even neovascular glaucomas. And that's because you can imagine mass effect where sitting right where they are, they can be close to the angle, they can invade into the angle and obstruct it. And because some of these, when they do eventually become malignant, uh, require a vascular supply, a neovascularization for that purpose will even potentially introduce neovascular glaucoma. But that's not the only reason I care about it, of course. Um, it could, these things can do other things. Secondary exam findings you can find are sectoral cataract, ectropia and UVA, or corectopia. You can imagine easily these things are pulling things around on the iris, iris stroma, iris pigment epithelium, and that could just make your pupil look weird. Uh, and some of these sometimes can also bleed, and that can lead to a hyphema. One of these often pickles we're in, if it's leading to glaucoma too, is, well, if they really need management of the glaucoma, you, you're limited. Your hands are tied because you have to think twice before considering a trabeculectomy or a tube shunt. Because if it really is a malignancy, that just might spread it everywhere. Yeah, that sounds no, no bueno. In terms of, you know, imaging diagnostics that can help us, there are a few that are helpful. One is, of course, serial photography. I think that's accessible to most ophthalmology offices and especially helpful because it's really hard when you're um, describing your exam to describe it so accurately that you'd be able to tell from year to year uh, if it's getting bigger. Another thing that can be really helpful is ultrasonography, which most offices have, but whether or not you're set up to do UBMs is a, a whole nother thing. Those, however, are quite helpful in just monitoring uh, the size and the growth and the extension. Uh, 
Other things that have been used are FA, yes, anterior segment FA, so on the iris, but it's actually not super helpful because it can show increased vascularity of lesions, but that doesn't necessarily tell us if it is one certain type of lesion versus another. So ultimately, it's not widely available and not super helpful. And one thing, too, I think I've seen elsewhere is anterior segment OCT has a lot of promise and potential, but so far it seems like it's uh, limited in how deeply it can penetrate through some of these iris lesions. And that's inferior to ultrabiomicroscopy because ultrasound can at least show you tumor echogenicity and that sort of thing. So we kind of touched on this a little bit, but let's specifically talk about what you might see on a clinical exam. Do you want to start out? Yeah, I mean, we talked about how it can change pupils, stuff, how it can uh, lead to glaucoma through different mechanisms. But I think the really helpful pearl here is something that you're not always thinking about. Otherwise, sentinel vessels. And when I say that, you're like, okay, I'll look for sentinel vessels in the iris itself. Sure. But think outside the box a little bit, literally in this case, you can also find these sentinel vessels subconjunctivally. They could be traveling across the episclera subconjunctivally and then dive in. So if you see a big kind of beefy subconjunctival vessel that suddenly disappears around the pars plata area, sort of like an Axenfeld loop, but without pigment really, uh, how an Axenfeld loop just disappears because it's taking that 90 degree turn into the eye. Uh, a sentinel vessel could do the same thing to feed an iris tumor from the outside. Um, so don't just look at the iris only. Make sure you're looking at the perilimbal uh, subconjunctival area to looking for sentinel vessels too. So to clarify a little bit for those of you who are looking for diving vessels, make sure it's a diving vessel adjacent to an area that you think is suspicious. Yeah, it, it doesn't help you if it's like on the complete other side of the eye <laughs> or the other <laughs> eyeball. <laughs> Another thing that you've mentioned, Andrew, is ectropian UVA. And the best thing to do is look at a photo of this, but it's really quite striking to see this pigment around the pupillary border or even further. And these are caused by these fibrovascular membranes that develop. And as they contract, they pull the posterior side of the iris around the pupillary border and anterior. So that's what you, that's why you start to see it. Rounding out our generalities before we get to those differential diagnoses is common themes in management that they all share. And Amanda had already given us our Shakespearean to biopsy or not biopsy dilemma. Usually that's done through a fine needle biopsy. And that can really help you get some diagnostic certainty if you're worried about, you know, continuing to serial observe or the risks of uh, excisional management or how do you deal with it. But you have to counterbalance that with false negatives and positives and then as well as the risk of seeding the tumor, which uh, folks like uh, the Shields have written is actually a fairly minimal risk, but still does exist. Surgically, you can manage these things beyond that by uh, excising them. And the surgery called the iridocyclectomy is 
just quite a fun thing to look up. I, it's complicated enough to the point where I'll direct you to YouTube to <laughs> kind of see what that's like. But imagine similar to a trabeculectomy and then really, really uh, getting rid of not just <laughs> the corneal or trabecular wedge, but getting rid of an entire block of iris and ciliary body at the same time. Otherwise, if uh, the tumor is so uh, worrisome that you're worried an iridocyclectomy won't be enough either, you can treat with plaque brachytherapy. And yes, those plaques can be adapted for more anterior segment type things. Uh, or, you know, you could just hit eject totally and elect to enucleate or eviscerate. Uh, but in this case, again, for seeding risk, it's typically more enucleation that folks talk about rather than evisceration. Okay. Now that we've gotten through the general stuff, let's get into the specifics and start talking about our iris tumor differential. And first up on this list, the non-malignant thing, but possibly troublesome thing, iris cysts. So iris cysts have one thing in uh, one conceptual framework here that we can use is, is it a pigmented thing or is it not? And an iris cyst could be or it might not be. And that's because there are two different origins of iris cysts. There's the type of iris cyst that originates between the split of the two iris pigment epithelial layers, which are at the most posterior part of the iris. The other type of iris cyst is one originating from the iris stroma, so the layer a bit anterior to those two pigment epithelial layers. And that distinction is helpful because if it's stromal, then it won't necessarily look that much different. It might not have more pigmentation. It's just going to look like this three-dimensional protuberance of the iris itself, kind of just like a ball under a carpet lifts the carpet forward. These stromal irises are usually diagnosed in infancy, whereas these cysts from pigment epithelium are more typically diagnosed in teenage years. And this is a callback to uh, Amanda just talking about ectropian UVA. These kinds of cysts can be at the pupillary border, too. So right at the iris margin where the pupil is, you can have a pigment epithelium iris cyst that just pops up. And if it does that at that section, it can look like a weird three-dimensional version of ectropian UVA. Um, and these are usually diagnosed in infancy. Let's do an iterative callback because these kinds of pupillary uh, cysts, can e they even have their own name, iris flocculi. And there's a differential even for iris flocculi what drug can cause a similar-looking pupillary cyst? Echopiophate. <laughs> and thanks for being our audience standard. Do you use it? <laughs> we, we see some patients in the glaucoma clinic who've historically been on it, and echothiophate is an annoying thing. If you stop it, their pressure goes way high. <laughs> it's really uncontrollable. Wow. They actually, um, a while back, stopped producing it. And everybody's pressure skyrocketed. <laughs> Well, while we're on the topic of, you know, memory lane, remembering echothiophate, what other drug can you concomitantly give somebody receiving echothiophate to prevent those iatrogenic pupillary cysts? Phenylephrine! Yeah. 
weird. Which, <laughs> it's weird. And it's also kind of funny because when you dilate these eyes that have the pupillary border cyst, that's sometimes where you can see it come out. And there are mm. these really cool um, transilluminated photos of it. It looks like this dark brown bulge in a dilated pupil, like bulging into the pupil. Yeah. The cystic appearance is really quite striking uh, sometimes. So to clarify a little bit, the pigment epithelium iris cysts do often get diagnosed in teenage years, like Andrew said, but the caveat is that they can be caught earlier in infancy if they're around the pupillary border because they're so striking like we just discussed. Yeah, they're a lot more obvious at the pupil. These things, if you were to test them on ultrabiomicroscopy, you just see that they're fluid-filled. Uh, prognostically, they're pretty happy. Um, in this episode, especially when we're talking about malignancy, there's no malignant potential here. Uh, if they're originating from the stroma, these iris cysts can slowly enlarge, and that can cause issues other than malignancy. So especially remember, if these are pupillary um, pigment epithelial cysts, at the in a kid, it could cause amblyopia if they get too big. Um, you can get iritis from cystic leakage of the cyst. The cornea even theoretically could decompensate if these things are that big, maybe brushing against the corneal endothelium. Uh, so you sometimes have to excise them for these other reasons, and that can be manage, uh, a management dilemma because these things sometimes come back when you try to aspirate them. So sometimes excision is required, and sometimes excision doesn't fully get it either. But uh, thankfully, there's no malignant potential. So I think we can move on to the major frequent differential. What the frick is this brown thing I'm looking at? And is it possibly melanoma? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the scary thing, right? We see so many iris nevi. You're looking at them and trying to judge. And most of the time you feel fairly confident that they're just fine, but you really don't want to miss that melanoma. So to really drive this home, color really isn't that helpful. It doesn't help if it's dark brown. It doesn't help if it's amelanotic because both an iris nevus and a melanoma can be pigmented or non-pigmented. Um, one confounder to remember is that there is something called ocular melanocytosis, or if the eyelid is involved, we call it a nevus of oda. And so this can give you a hyperpigmented appearance of the, of the sclera. And then even if it extends onto the iris, you could have some melano melanocytosis of the iris. There is a one in 400 risk of melanoma transformation in ocular melanocytosis alone, or a one in 10 glaucoma risk if you have a nevus aboda. And thanks, Amanda, for uh, uh, reminding us that diffuse hyperpigmentation um, it, sometimes it's also something we worry about if these uh, iris masses are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But that was meant as a reminder, like if the entire iris is just diffusely brown, it might not be anything to worry about as far as melanoma. It might just be ocular melanocytosis. And it doesn't help, right, that all of these things start with the letter M and they're all basically talking about mela whatever, mela something or other, and these things are really hard to keep straight. And that was half the reason we wanted to mention ocular melanocytosis in this breath. It's a little different. 
So what are some red flags then for telling a nevus from a melanoma? Well, if it's popping up in more places, like if this is uh, it started off being a nevus in one section of the iris, and then suddenly, as you keep seeing this patient, more and more iris nevi pop up throughout that iris, you should worry because not only is that potentially growing, it's also potentially spreading and seeding to other parts of the iris too. And you have to also make sure you're doing gonioscopy to catch these things that might be popping up very close to the angle and not potentially visible uh, without gonioscopy. Growth, of course, is a concerning feature, but extrascleral extension is also something that you don't want to miss. It's also growth, but it just might be in a different section that you were looking at. So if you see any uh, brown pigmented areas or even just uh, areas of concern, lesions of concern, popping up beyond uh, the iris, uh, maybe near to one of the iris lesions you've been following, there pops up this episcleral or subconjunctival area lesion, have high concern there, especially if there was a sentinel vessel very close to all of it. Okay. At last, we get to the one that we keep worrying about, and that's iris melanoma. So technically, this is in the same family as choroidal melanomas, because remember, the iris is part of the uvea, so is the choroid. It's fortunate that these are much less frequent than the other types of melanomas. I say fortunate because, you know, they're so hard to tell apart from iris nevi. Only about 5% of all uveal melanomas are iris melanomas. And they're usually not as malignant or usually not metastatic like the other uveal melanomas. When we talk about uveal melanomas, we do often classify them with that whole calendar classification with the spindle B, etc. That is actually just for posterior choroidal melanomas, and it's not applicable to iris melanomas. So when you're looking at these, you know, most of the time they're just going to be hard to tell apart from iris nevi. The BCSC says that three quarters of these iris melanomas develop inferiorly, though I'm not really sure how much to go by with that because I feel like I've seen them superiorly too. They can be highly vascular. And as we've been kind of warning everybody over and over, pigment doesn't matter. These can range from amelanotic to dark brown. Uh, But the dark brown ones too, one other thing to worry about with them, if they're super densely pigmented and you're looking for sentinel vessels or highly vascular arrangements that might clue you in to have a higher index of suspicion for melanomas, the highly pigmented ones could be hiding their vasculature from you. That just might be too hard to see the vascularity amidst all of the pigmentation. In terms of management, small ones where you're really not sure if it's a nevus or a melanoma, you can observe. You can biopsy if there are concerning features, but really we're not biopsying anything that we're pretty suspicious for a melanoma because we don't want to seed. The thing that we would probably opt for if it was very concerning for a melanoma would be an iridocyclectomy where you would just take it all out. So that works for small or medium ones that prevents that seeding issue that we were talking about earlier. Other things that could be considered would be plaque brachytherapy and nucleation. It is important to note, though, that the mortality rate is low, about 1% to 4%. The 
one thing that you need to worry about in determining how dangerous this is, is whether it's invading the angle because angle invasion has a higher risk for metastasis and death. The other entity in this category, because, you know, what's this brown thing, this usually brown thing? Uh, off air, Amanda was uh, teasing me a bit that I shouldn't have necessarily lumped this in because only, and I still wanted to, sorry everybody, because I'm going to assume that some of you out there are as easily confused as I was, uh, because, hey, the next thing we're going to talk about <laughs> sounds a lot like uh, melan melanoma. This one's the balanocytoma. And Amanda, you were uh, teasing me because like, oh, silly goose pow, this stuff is only at the optic nerve most of the time. And uh, most people know that. And I was like, well, I got so mixed up. I uh, know that sometimes I hear about it at the iris and that confuses me. So Amanda, would you help clear up my confusion <laughs> and everybody's confusion? So appearance wise, these are just very, very, very black or dark lesions. And they can be so dark that you might even have to bleach them when you are doing the histopathology. So that way you can actually see what is going on. The incidence is rare. They can grow anywhere along the uveal tract, but usually they're around the optic nerve. That's why I was teasing Andrew. And it's perhaps because whenever we did our histopathology review for OCAP, our ocular pathologist always had this classic uh, slide that he would show us of a melanocytoma that was right by the nerve. And every time it just blew my mind, I'm like, what the heck is that? Because I kept forgetting. And now I remember it as something around the nerve. And that is where it's commonly seen, but it, it really can arise anywhere around the uveal tract. So ciliary body, iris, um, it's just not something I typically think of. And thank you, Andrew, for reminding me I need to think about it. <laughs> if it grows, it could grow anteriorly and pop up at the iris angle. And then it can also be seen uh, subconjunctivally if it extends along a scleral emissary canal. So if it does all the same things as an iris melanoma um, or an iris nevus as far as growth and appearance, the one thing that distinguishes it is uh, that it's even though it has malignant potential, it usually does not become malignant. And uh, this places it kind of as an in-between prognostic category between iris nevi and melanomas. So in between, you've, you've got uh, melanocytomas as eh, occasionally malignant, sort of in-between nevus and melanoma. But just remember the teasing part, these really, 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 when they pop up, they're almost never popping up at the iris or the angle or the ciliary body, they're usually like posterior optic nerve peripapillary lesions. There's your redheaded stepchild of <laughs> usually pigmented lesions. Now, anytime we talk about primary tumors, we always have to talk about METs. Can we get iris METs? Yes, we can. Although the way that these cancers from elsewhere in the body get to the iris is via the uveal tract. As we've said earlier, the iris is part of the uvea, but the posterior choroid gets these metastases 10 to 20 times more often than the iris does. So if you see a metastatic looking iris lesion, you got to be really suspicious that there may also be posterior choroidal lesions too. 
Amanda, can you tell us a bit more about what to expect of iris metastases? Something that would cue you into a metastasis is something that looks a little bit more atypical, like a white lesion or a grayish white kind of gelatinous nodule that would definitely not belong there. You should be considering whether a metastasis is a possibility. If you see a suspicious lesion like what I just described, I would recommend talking with or referring to an ocular oncologist to get that checked out. And they may even need systemic or general oncology if it turns out to be a metastasis, because of course there's going to be more to deal with than just the eye. And then the prognosis is going to be based on what that is and whether it's treatable. So it's very variable depending on the tumor type. I guess one thing I can think of that they might test on that they like to test on is the, you know, if you roll the dice, what is the most likely uh, primary malignancy? And they usually separate that between men and women. I think it's lung cancer still for men and still breast cancer is the most common primary for women. Is that right, Amanda? That sounds right, Andrew. Iris metastases are certainly dangerous and have malignant potential for sure. They are malignant by definition, but they don't necessarily look brown. Another thing to not forget about that also has malignant potential, fairly dangerous, and also may not look brown, is the medulloepithelioma. But you're probably not going to actually see this in real life. And Amanda, I'll let you talk about why that is. (laughs) So it's funny for how often this comes up in practice test questions and test questions. I thought it was going to be more common and it's really like case reports and case series. It's pretty rare, but it is emphasized because of an increased mortality rate. So the other name for this is dictyoma. It's kind of an old name. We usually call it a medulloepithelioma, but I always remember it as medulloepitheliomas are dicks because they have higher mortality. (laughs) Whatever that mortality is, it's hard to say because they're so rare and they're case reports. So no one actually has a actual percentage that they can give you. Your clinical exam, these are going to be tumors arising from the ciliary body that can come from the uh, non-pigmented epithelium, but can also be found elsewhere in the in the eye, but that would be a lot more rare. So if it was around the retina or the um, optic nerve, so it's kind of like the opposite of the melanocytoma. They interestingly can have teratitoid ter- teratoid? I can't even say that word, elements. So like a teratoma, um, one classic thing would be having cysts or cartilage inside the tumor itself. You can also see a characteristic lens notch if the zonules have been affected. In other words, if the zonules are absent where that medulloepithelioma is, and it would give that uh, appearance that we talked about last time with the uh, lens notch that occurs in colobomas. But this is for a completely di- completely different reason. Yeah, I like uh, how you've emphasized, Amanda, that there's relatively little documented on these. Like, I feel like the couple of case reports about it in the 50s just terrified every textbook writer and they made sure nobody would ever <laughs> forget the word medulloepithelioma to the point where they don't have much proof about mortality rates, but they all say the recommended treatment is enucleation. And that's like the most for sure thing you read about it anywhere. So you're probably not really going to see this ever in your practice. Uh, but 
if you do, <laughs> that's going to be tricky because then you're going to have to have a weird conversation with your patient about, so we might just denucleate you. <laughs> yeah, I thought there would be so much more data behind it, but again, rare things. So I'm sure a lot of you guys out there are wondering, how come you had a whole episode on iris tumors and you didn't mention leash nodules even once? That's because I saved all those like pathognomonic or at least super associated with a certain disease kinds of iris lesions for this section. And uh, we'll just run through a bunch of them. We'll uh, start with brush field spots. I'm going to ask you, Amanda, if you can uh, remind us what brush field spots are associated with. So these are hypopigmented spots that are associated with Down syndrome. In fact, they're seen in about 90% of those with Down syndrome. They can be seen outside of Down syndrome. So that's about 25% of those are seen without Down syndrome. And they're called apparently Wolflin, Wolflin spots then, just to complicate yeah. things more. But I know, same. right? <laughs> the same thing has two different names depending on if it's in a person with Down syndrome or not. Brushfield and Wolflin spot. Other stuff, actually, we had a whole episode on this elsewise, so we will direct you to that. So the other thing is juvenile xanthogranuloma. Uh, please just listen to the episode we had about that. Xanthogranulomas on the iris. Those, I think, yellow-looking, fleshy spots on the irises. Um, and then the stuff everybody kind of gets beaten into them when they're learning about sarcoidosis, the inflammatory nodules that are really, really obvious in sarcoidosis, but can pop up with other inflammatory uh, etiologies. Amanda, could you help us tease apart whether a Busaka nodule is different from a Berlin nodule? <laughs> yeah. So starting at the pupillary margin, you can have Kepi nodules. If they're in the iris stroma or mid-periphery, then we call them Busaka nodules. And then if they're in the angle, we call them Berlin nodules. And the way I always remember this is that they're in reverse alphabetical order as you go from the pupillary margin to the periphery or the angle. And that is Kepi, Busaka, Berlin. Hmm. That's much better than my Kepi at the curb thing, because <laughs> I always forget which curb I was talking about. Um, then in Kogan-Reese, uh, iris iridocorneal endothelial syndromes, the Kogan-Reese version of ice syndrome, will have pedunculated nodules on the iris. Um, the leash nodules that are certainly associated with neurofibromatosis 1. And iris mammalations, which are pretty poorly defined as far as what they're associated with, but you'll see references to their association with nevus avoda and also neurofibromatosis type 1. The best way to, for us to describe these things to you is, honestly, sorry, just go look at an atlas and look at some pictures about each one of these guys. Guess what, Andrew? What, Amanda? We made it to the end, so it's time to summarize. We did. <laughs> I'll take the first one. Iris cis. Not malignant, but can be troublesome. Next one. Iris nevuses versus melanoma. Look for worrisome signs that may distinguish a growing melanoma, including multifocality and growth, both on the iris or elsewhere, uh, including extrascleral. In between the nevus, nevus or melanoma is the melanocytoma, which will look really, really dark and with maybe a lumpy irregular surface, but is actually super, super uncommon and you're very unlikely to ever see it. 
and do not miss thing is iris metastases. They're often multifocal, can be bilateral. They can look white or gelatinous. They're just going to be a funky iris nodule thing. Amanda called the iris mets kind of weird and funky looking, but if you ever come across a medulloepithelioma uh, and one that has teratoid elements in it, those could be really weird and funky looking, maybe even with bits of cartilage floating around in the chamber that is detached off of that. But it's super rare, Whoa. but know that the medulloepithelioma, yep, you can have a tooth or cartilage just floating in your eyeball from a medulloepithelioma, according to case reports. Um, and those same case reports just say enucleate due to risk of death, and they do not elaborate from there. <laughs> That'll pretty much do it for this week, and thanks all for joining us. Bye. Bye. <laughs>